Hey, you got one of these? Pull it out for me. It's a good thing, by the way, for much of church history, it was illegal for you to have one of these. You understand? Many countries today, it's illegal for you to have one of these. Saudi Arabia, you can't fly in with any pork products, narcotics, alcohol, or religious books, unless it's the Koran. It's one of several countries that's not real big on this book, but God is. Acts chapter 17 is where I'd like you to turn real quick. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Yeah, illegal. Were it not for guys like Coverdale and Wycliffe and Tyndale, who gave their lives literally to get this book in your in your hand, you'd still be enslaved to a church that abuses its power and wants you to trust them. Just trust me. Trust me on this. It's never been the perspective of Scripture. Acts 17, I'm looking down to verse number 10. Paul had spent time in Thessalonica. And while the epistle says things went well with a good portion of those folks, uh, it didn't go well with a large portion of other folks. A mob was formed, you know the story, but they moved on to Berea. It says in verse 10, this is Acts 17, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish, Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness, which they did, in Thessalonica, a large portion of them did, but here's why it was a uh, more noble crowd. They received the message with great eagerness and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Of course, he was teaching from the Old Testament about the Messiah, the promises of the Messiah. He would make claims and he said, it's fantastic that you go, you search the scriptures every day to see if whether or not what I'm saying is true. And many of the Jews believed, and so did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. It's a good thing that we have the book, and that's really all that matters when it comes to truth. It is helpful when preachers and teachers can clarify its meaning, but the source of authority for us, it's why we are Protestants, it's why we want the Word of God to be central in our worship, it's why we spend more time preaching than singing, it's because the Word of God is to be the final arbiter of truth in our lives. I'm ho I hope you're in it every day. This whole course this fall is about making sure that this book, as we put our confidence in it, making sure that book uh, bears the marks of inspiration and has been accurately delivered to us through the generations. So we're going to get back into it here in page number 30, but first let's begin with a word of prayer. We're on page 30 in our notes. If you didn't get the notes, if you happen to be visiting or you're new, there are some I think we're left on every table. If that's not the case, they're in the back and we can get one for you. You just wave somebody down or you can sneak back there while I pray. But let's start with a word of prayer. Pray with me, please. God, in a world that is so chaotic, filled with people who are trying to assert their perspective on every topic under the sun, everyone choosing to believe what they want to believe based on how they feel about the things that they hear, all of them heading to a, a day of their own demise when their body will be laid in a grave and their spirit will stand before you and be answerable to the written revelation of God. I pray that we as a people would be countercultural. Instead of sitting back and saying, well, that sounds good and that's a good idea, we would go back to the word we would spend time in the Word. We'd be students of the Word. We would master the Word of God. Pray for those in our midst tonight that have never read through the Bible from the beginning to the end. 
Pray for them that they would make that very first elementary, really a grammar school step of cruising through the entire Bible and taking it all in. And for those that are doing that with us every year, I pray that we would go deeper than just reading a few chapters a day, but we would really dig our our minds into a passage of Scripture and that we would digest it, that we would spend more time reading the Word of God than we do anything else. And God, as we read it, as it convicts us, as we learn how living and active and how sharp it is in our own lives, as it convicts us and brings us to conviction on a number of topics, I pray, God, that you would help us in this fall semester of Compass Night to have our confidence in your word bolstered as we think through its logical progression from your mind to this book in our lives. And also, God, that we'd be ready to give an answer to anyone who might ask for us to give an account for the hope that's in us. Pray that we would do it with gentleness and respect, but I pray, God, we'd be ready to defend the uh, cacophony of, of voices and criticism and all the craziness that I read uh, every week of people trying to ignorantly undermine the Scripture with all kinds of one-liners and sound bites that have no bearing or relation to the truth while making up arguments against this book. God, help us. I know it is hard to accept it for what it is because it has so many implications for how we live, how we think, what we value, what we do. But I pray, God, that as we submit to your word, that you would show yourself to be strong and powerful in our lives, to bring to our lives a kind of hope and a kind of faith and a kind of love that transforms the way we live. So make us people of the book. Let us be in it more often. Let us get our minds wrapped around it. Let us meditate on your word day and night because the promise of Psalm 1, it's so true and it's true for all time. Then we'll be like a a tree planted by the streams of water. We'll bear fruit in season and our leaves won't wither. Our lives will be strong and resilient and healthy. So God, make that true for us. Thanks for this time set aside for us to study the history of the word. Pray you'd bless us now as we learn more about how this book came to be in its present form in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's do some review without peeking. God's going to get thoughts into the mind of the prophet. That would be the first step. We call that step revelation. Still not as strong as I would have hoped at this point in our study. Once it's in the mind of the prophet, it's going to be put on paper. God's got a name for that. It's called actually the word theopneustos. Much better. We prefer the words God breathed. That's much better. Thankfully, it's there in the NIV and the ESV and very few others. Now, we've got a lot of manuscripts on the table. We've got to make a decision. Is this one really part of God's inspired library? We call that step canonicity. Very good. Now we say, oh, it absolutely is. It's got to get from then to now. We call that transmission. Very good. And once we have all the pieces of all the legitimate texts there on the table, they're going to be turned into our modern Um, Hebrew Bibles and Greek Bibles, we call that step. Wow, that was the weakest one. It is the wordiest one. Textual criticism. Now we've got those modern Hebrew and Greek Bibles, Old and New Testament. We've got to get them into our language. We call that Translation. translation. Fantastic. Great. We are here. Letter C. Letter C in the middle of the page, page 30. Writing materials. The first one we need to learn about. And it is a fascinating story. We need to learn about papyrus, which is more than a store in the mall. Papyrus, 
Let's talk about it. Papyrus. Papyrus is a plant, and it looks like this. And you'll see this even today along the banks of the Nile River. Uh, it grows in uh, marshy areas and arid lands. You could grow it here if you'd like. They don't take the leaves. They take the stalk, and they start stripping the stalk, and they put it on a table. Here's a picture of a modern process of doing it. It's the same as the ancient days. They get it wet. They use the pulp of the plant. They take a roller of some kind, stones perhaps in the old days. They would roll out then these strips of the stalk of the papyrus. And they would do that vertically, and then they would do that horizontally. And they would make a a nice basket uh, pattern. Wouldn't weave it. They would just lay it down on one direction and then on the other. When it's wet, it looks something like this. This is backlit, and you can see it that way. It's uh, the, the top side, by the way, recto they call it, and verso, it's the Latin words for it. Uh, recto is the front side of a papyrus document, and it is always the way, and this makes sense, where the papyrus is going horizontally, because that helps you write. Hard to write on the, on the verso side, on the back side of it, uh, although some did, and there are some. Uh, the Ryland's papyrus we'll look at tonight, both sides are written on. When it's dried, it looks like that, and that looks like something you might pay extra for at the stationery store. Um, but that's a piece of papyrus. That was kind of cool. Went from plant to paper, right? Papyrus. Very good. And papyrus, by the way, is the Latinized form of a Greek word that comes from a Hebrew word, which is the word for the plant, the papyrus plant which is what it's called today. Uh, some people have said, well, I don't even believe the Bible because the Bible, there was not even writing back then. Uh, we have evidence in history that papyrus and writing on papyrus goes all the way back to 3100 BC. I mean, we're talking the fourth millennia. We've got BC uh, evidence of papyrus being used in probably the same exact format that I just showed you. Horizontal, vertical, laid together, pressed together with stones, some kind of weight, pressed down, dried out as early as uh, 3000 BC. Uh, Many, if not most, of the autographs or the autographia, the original writings of the Bible, were on papyrus. Uh, Second John, verse 12, uh, there's a word here, and I think, I don't know, you have an ESV? You might want to open that up. What does verse 12 read? I have much to write to you, the NIV says, and I don't want to use paper and ink. Chartes in Greek is the word for papyrus. And he's clearly referring to the plant, the, the paper made from the plant. Instead, I hope to visit you soon. What does ESV call it? I didn't look it up. That's Second John? Does it say paper? Okay. So, I mean, clearly John is saying, if I'm going to write a book, uh, I'm going to use papyrus. So that's an interesting fact. This ancient uh, method of writing or making paper was what most of the Old, Testament, uh, Old and New Testaments were written on. Not all. Papyrus was put together or joined together to make a a scroll. Uh, That's usually how it was used in the Old Testament, particularly when you see passages like Jeremiah 36, talking about making scrolls, taking scrolls, writing on scrolls. That would be how you made your ancient book, and you've all seen the scrolls where you take papyrus, you join them together, and you put them in a long strip and roll them up. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, by the way, in the vision that John has, uh, of coming, uh, of, of the, uh, the angel coming and crying out, where's someone to open the seals on the scroll? 
Uh, clearly, in Revelation chapter 5, the message is coming on a scroll, which was the way that they would write their books. The original Bible books were probably written uh, on papyrus and made into scrolls. The seals, by the way, were the seals that they would put on sections of the scroll so you could only open up certain sections. You would unroll it to a certain point and there would be a seal on it, a wax seal, and it would be maybe for the courier to read this. It's kind of like the address on it, the envelope, and then there would be a seal there. And then maybe it said for, you know, uh, for Johnny, John, message to Johnny, and you'd open, break that seal for Johnny, you'd read the next section, and then the next part would be sealed up later inside the rolled up scroll, and that would say, you know, for mom and dad only, and then only mom and dad were supposed to crack that seal. Seven seals in the picture of the scroll uh, in the book of Revelation, just to give you some context there of what the scrolls and the seals were all about. All right, there's another writing, um, there was another writing material that was very popular uh, called vellum. Vellum. Vellum is leather. That's all that vellum is, and you can see where it might be easier for us to go to the plentiful plants by the marsh or by the river than to utilize animal skins, which were utilized for so many other things. Of course, that's where you get vellum. But look carefully, if you can, at this. If, if you can see the difference, this is a, a vellum here. I, I believe this is an Old Testament text. I didn't write it down, and I put this together two weeks ago for us. But um, if you look closely at that, you don't see the, the, the characteristic papyrus, you know, uh, kind of a pattern, the boxed, you know, cross-hashed pattern. If you look closely, you see what looks like, looks like leather. Uh, when you get to passages in Scripture like 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul speaks of wanting his books, if you will. And he tells Timothy to bring the books... And he says, bring my scrolls, which we assume are the papyruses, uh, the papyri put together into a scroll. And then he uses another word, uh, membrana, which is the Greek word uh, we translate parchments. When you see the word parchments, we're talking now about animal skins, which was a more durable, in most cases, uh, writing material. And it would last, last longer. Even in the Old Testament, we have hints that some of the passages, and our books of the Old Testament rather, were written on, um, on parchment, on leather, on vellum, because of the way they're described and even the way uh, the, he was instructed there uh, before the king to cut off a part of this scroll, not tear off, which scrolls papyrus would generally do. Anyway, that little hint, among others, lets us know, hey, we're talking probably about animal skins. So we've got Old Testament books written, written on papyrus and animal skins. New Testament books, Paul, we're assuming, asking for some of those perhaps, or at least the general writing materials of the New Testament, both vellum and, and parchment. Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, we're going to talk about those tonight. Those were all written on vellum. Vellum was preferred, preferred over papyrus for most of church history, and yet it didn't last very long either. Which is, by the way, because the New Testament documents were written primarily on papyrus and, and, and vellum, we don't have any original manuscripts. And we've hinted that throughout this study, but you do know that. We, we don't have any original manuscripts because both papyrus and vellum, they will disintegrate. Uh, it was a very unique find in the Dead Sea Scrolls that we have 2,000 and 2,100 year old parchment and vellum. 
because those are uh, vellum parchment and papyrus because those documents normally, uh, if they're used, they don't last. Uh, they don't last very long. So when we talk about manuscripts going back to the first century, second century, third century, fourth century, that's an amazing feat. And if you look at the map as we're going to, you're going to see why most of them end up in arid places, hot and dry places like Egypt, the Dead Sea, uh, the Arabian Desert, uh, the Sinai Peninsula, because they're hot and dry, uh, which doesn't really always do well for vellum because they dry out. But humidity is worse than, than arid places. They can be made into a book, you need to understand, or a scroll. And the only reason I put this down now is because the word codex will be very important from this point on in our study. Codex is papyrus or vellum made and bound into a book with pages, leaves they like to call them, which is confusing because often they're vellum, uh, but they're pages. And I'll talk today as we get to some of the finds that we have in existing and old manuscripts. Uh, they've got so many pages because the ones that have lasted the longest and were made and stored in the, uh, uh, in the prosperous areas were often made into books or codices, codexes. Codices is how you properly say it. Thirdly, number three, uh, clay. Clay is usually pottery. Sometimes it's cylinders. Sometimes it's broken pottery. Our word for that is potsherds. And those were used, once you broke a pot in the kitchen, uh, dad would say, don't throw that away. <laughs> we can use that, as dads often say about a lot of things that moms don't like. We've got to keep that. We might need that. And they would use those pieces of broken pottery uh, to write things on and even, you know, pass back and forth in various ways in the marketplace, uh, sometimes as contracts, sometimes as receipts. Here's an example uh, of a thousand-year-old pot sheared with uh, Greek, the end of a Greek sentence on it. But it looks like what you would imagine, those scrawling words on, on pots. There are various forms. There are formal forms where we put things together for the sake of posterity on a clay cylinder. And then there are the informal, which I just described, in a household where things would be written down. And someone would become a Christian, there would be preaching, someone would jot down a, uh, uh, an apostolic statement, and it would be put down on, on these broken pieces of pottery. Uh, examples in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 4, uh, verse number 1. Some clay in a formal setting was used as a tablet. Ezekiel 4, 1 says, Now, son of man, take a clay tablet and write this, right? on it. And he wants him to start with the city of Jerusalem. We read that not long ago in our annual Bible reading. And Ezekiel writes on a clay tablet, which is usually, when it's a tablet, you might think of something thin. It was usually thick. It was like a thick book. Uh, it would be like a brick, a big brick. They would take the brick and they would scrawl with a, um, and really it's a, it's a scribe's point or a scribe's knife, and they would write in it, in a, in a clay tablet or a brick or a tile more like a tile. Jeremiah 17 verse 1 uh, again describes not only the thing it's written on but it describes the tool and it calls it an iron tool. This is a picture of God talking about Judah's sin engraved or inscribed as though with a flint point or an iron tool on the tablets of their hearts. That's the picture of clay or pot sheared. Stone number four this may be more familiar as you thumb through ancient history books, especially in 
in secular, um, although there's a lot of biblical stone writings, but I think of, for instance, the Rosetta Stone. You recognize the Rosetta Stone, which is not just a new software program. <laughs> you understand that. This is uh, because the Rosetta Stone was incredibly important second century B.C. Uh, stone. And the reason it's used for, uh, you know, Michael Phelps selling, uh, you know, learn Spanish software is because the Rosetta Stone uh, was given to us in three different languages. Uh, it really was the key for us understanding Greek uh, hieroglyphics. And when we broke the code on the Rosetta Stone of the Greek hieroglyphics, because it was the last language was Greek, there was Demotic hieroglyphics, demotic, and Greek, and the Greek and the hieroglyphics, they were all saying the same thing, uh, then we were able to take documents, for instance, like Joseph Smith claimed were uh, writings of the, you know, of the, of the patriarch Abraham, and uh, when we finally started to recognize what, how we could decipher hieroglyphics, uh, obviously we exposed those things as a fraud, because it was a fraud. Um, <laughs> But the Rosetta Stone was helpful in that regard. Hammurabi's Code, you heard of that, right? Ancient Babylonian Law Code from the 1700 uh, BC. And, and this with the Akkadian style writing on it written on stone. And these are great because unlike vellum and parchment, uh, they last a long time. Clay pots, uh, unfortunately, are brittle and they break. Stones are good. That's why God, when he first started writing, started with stones. You remember that, right? I mean, the very first revelation from God came down from Sinai uh, inscribed on stone. I couldn't find a picture of Moses that looked very authentic, so I picked this one here. Stone, biblical writing material. Hammurabi Code predated that, by the way, by 300 years, writing on stone. How about this one? Oh, we just said that. Ten Commandments. That's obviously Exodus 24, 12. Uh, Deuteronomy 27 and it's good if you're taking notes, thorough notes here, to know where we see these kinds of things. Not only uh, Exodus 24 clarifying the tablets of stone uh, that the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, was written on. But Deuteronomy 27, for instance, uh, I'll read this for you, verse, verses 2 and 3. When you crossed over to the, the Jordan into the land the Lord your God is giving you, set up large stones, coat them with plaster, and write on them the words of this law. I mean, here were monuments like obelisks, you know what an obelisk is, right? The, the Washington Monument is an obelisk, the sign that they, you know, glow with different colors at the Irvine Spectrum is an obelisk. They would use those in Israel. They would make stones, they would cover them, and then they would inscrawl on them with a, scribe, uh, a scribe's tool. Uh, they would write passages of Scripture. They would write things that God had um, written probably on papyrus or vellum previously with Moses, they would copy those onto large stones. Joshua chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, uh, same idea here, speaking about taking stones and referring to the process of writing on them with an iron tool. Uh, I just threw this one in. God writes on a wall in Daniel 5.5. 5. That was a unique situation, but you remember that story. wasn't good for the Babylonians, because that was the end of the Babylonians. How about this one, number five, metal. I don't know why I didn't do this with the other ones, but here's some of these passages you might want to jot down. Exodus 28, 36. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, holy to the Lord. And we know that not only were these like decorative kinds of plaques that they would inscribe uh, scripture on or statements on, uh, they were also 
used as, as writing materials. The Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance. And this is a library. Remember the Dead Sea Scrolls, the context between the 3rd century B.C. to the 1st century B.C., uh, really till the time of Christ. They had this library, and they stuck everything in these, in these caves while they ran up to Masada and all got killed and committed suicide. Those, that library, we found things, and maybe if you've read anything on the Dead Sea Scrolls, like the Copper Scroll. Uh, the Copper Scroll in the Dead Sea Scrolls was a scroll, as it sounds, of copper and written on it, uh, which is an interesting read, by the way, was this fanciful story of treasure that was buried uh, in Israel. They have, t- even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, if I don't recall correctly, it's from my memory now, uh, copper, uh, gold, and silver texts, sometimes scriptural texts written on them. Job nineteen twenty four that they were inscribed, and he's just now poetically speaking, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. Well, this tells us not only was it the pattern to write on rock, it was also a pattern in scriptural times to write on things like lead. All right, that's just an overview. We'll get to specifics as to what things are important for us as we move through this next section. But those are some writing materials among a few others, but those are the main ones that we'll run into as we kind of review what we found. Okay, we are... 3,400 years from the writing of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. We're almost 2,000 years from the writing of the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. Almost all of them were written on papyrus and vellum, so we don't have those documents. But what have we discovered? And what's been great about the last 200 years is we've found tons in the last couple hundred years, but we've had many dating back to many years. So we're going to go through these one at a time. Let's talk about the papyri. And let's keep our minds in the New Testament. We're going to have a little excursus on the Old Testament coming up next week where we'll talk about, well, how do we know? I mean, that sounds harder. 3,400 years ago, I want to make sure that what I'm reading in Jeremiah and Ezekiel is really what Jeremiah and Ezekiel wrote. Well, it's really going to be an easier task for us to have confidence in the Old Testament. The challenges are going to come with the New Testament, and we'll see why when we get to that. So let's think New Testament papyri, okay? What we found. Let's talk about them by at least describing them. When we talk about a class of New Testament manuscripts that we call papyri or a particular papyrus, we're talking about the oldest New Testament extant manuscripts. These are words we're going to use throughout, so we got to get used to them. Extant, existing. The earliest existing manuscripts are all in this category called papyrus. We have cataloged Oh, I think I say this on the thing. 126 sets of papyri to date. Okay? Now, here was one of the problems I had. Remember, did I tell you my sob story about the copy machine going down on the first week of... of, Did I say that? Did I I tear up just a little bit as I was telling you that story? I tried to. Because look at page 39, 40, 41, 42. Those are absolutely horrific bad copies, are they not? Plus, it's done in a way uh, that is meant to increasingly torture seminary students with lots of abbreviations that we don't need. So, thank God for Wikipedia, because <laughs> they've helped us out here a little bit. And if, you could, if I could get three of you over here and three of you over here maybe to help me pass these out, I want you to, you don't have to replace it, but as a supplement to page 38, I want you to get these new... Uh, new charts. Could, could I get a little help on these? Pass these out. This is the new sub. And I even try to save paper for you tree huggers uh, by doing both sides. 
because you don't need to take any notes in this section. Okay, and what's great about this is there's no abbreviations. They don't even abbreviate on Wikipedia the Bible references, and I'm so grateful for that. So real quickly, uh, well, I'll let you get that, then I'll refer to this. What this does basically is it replaces pages 39 uh, at least to, you need a whole pack. There's about 10 pages there. They're cross-hatched like papyrus, so just grab a stack. Now, this is what we call a list of all registered New Testament papyri. We'll get to that. But when I say 126, most people say 126. It's not 126. It's 126 sets, okay, which sometimes we're taking could be 15 to 20 different papyri and saying that's all one. And as you'll see, some of them cover a lot of ground. I mean, you got Acts 4 and 5, or, or Papyrus 61, you got Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 5, Philippians 3, Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, Titus 3, Philemon. All of that is categorized under the grouping P61. And why is it a Gothic letter? That's a good question. But that's just the way it's always been. And I'm sure there's a story to that, but it's just, it's just cool to look at. By the way, here is a, bo a book like this you can get on... Uh, Amazon, or better yet, you can order it through our bookstore. Here is all the 126 papyri all put out for you here with an introduction to each one of them. This book is called, and I should have put it on the overhead, or did I? Oh, I did. Here it comes. Uh, it's coming up. But since I'm killing time while you're, we're passing these supplements out, how many pages is this? 700 pages. All of them, they'll give you a picture of the extant papyri. It'll give you the text of that extant papyri. It'll tell you about that particular papyrus, and it'll tell you all about that particular papyrus. Now, if you want to go further than this, you can get a book like this, which no one wants to buy. But this is a bibliography of Greek New Testament manuscripts. What this is, is a book about every papyri and all the books written about each one. Places you can go to study them. For instance, here's a book about one papyri from this book. So what you can do is you can go from looking at it to finding out what's written about it to finding a book about one of them, which is a group of papyri. You could do that about every papyrus that is listed on this chart. 126 in the Wikipedia list. This one was done years back, originally done in 1999, and he only cataloged uh, 115. Did you get them now? Do you have one in front of you? Now, not only do I have the papyri here, we'll get to the rest of this later, but I also have other manuscripts we'll be talking about. Let's look at the first page of this here. You got the papyrus. They're creatively numbered 1 through 126. It'll give you the approximate date. Now, this is Wikipedia, so they're never in favor, <laughs> it seems, of the scripture. So they always round up, you'll find, right, in most cases. And I'll show you some examples as, as we go through it. It'll tell you what's in that particular papyrus, what it covers. It'll tell you where it is. Where is it housed right now? Where can I go see it? Because unlike the golden plates of Joseph Smith, you can actually go see these if you'd like to. They're actually available. It'll tell you something uh, about its bibliography uh, or how it's categorized. More on that later, perhaps. Tell you what city it's in and what country it's in where you can find it. I mean, you'll look through this and you'll be surprised. You'll find, well, University of Michigan has one? Wow, interesting. A lot of them are in places you would expect, like the Egyptian Museum. A lot of them at the British Museum. A lot of them at, uh, at Ivy League schools. Some at non-Ivy League schools. Some at Papyrus 44, Metropolitan Museum of Art. 
They're all over the place and oftentimes on display where you go. That is exactly what's happening on pages 39 through 43, 44. It's just done for you in a better way in a, in a, and actually in a copy that you can read. I'm so glad. Except it says manuscripts in beige, right, pink, cayenne. It's, those aren't, we don't have it in color, sorry. By the way, as long as we're chaotically thumbing through the, the notebook, turn to page 45, and I wish we had better copies of this. This does something a little different. Instead of going in order of the number of papyri, this goes in order of the Bible books. Now again, these are just the oldest, test, the oldest testimony to the New Testament books. And it'll say, okay, the book of Matthew. Just the oldest manuscripts we have. How's it covered? A moon that's half filled, right, is half. One that's full, a full dot is the whole chapter, okay? Part of the chapter or all of the chapter. And as you thumb through those, you'll see how the papyri stack up. And then it gets into uncial manuscripts, and we'll talk about those later. All right, let's talk more about this on page, back to page, what are we on, 31? Back to 31. General dates. The first century through the seventh century, at least the second century through the seventh century, okay? Second to seventh, perhaps even the first. And I say the first, for those of you that have studied a little bit of textual, you're saying, well, I didn't know there was any first century extant manuscripts. And I should have brought that book too. I didn't, but I have it on a slide coming up here next. P64. Now, if you look at P64 on your chart, it'll say somewhere in the 200s. So that, that's pretty late compared to first century. And it's got Matthew 3, Matthew 5, Matthew 26. Uh, the Magdalen College, that's one of the colleges in Oxford. There is a set a papyri there that all are categorized P64, which some believe goes with P67. This book right here, and it's a fascinating read. It's called Eyewitness to Jesus. This is an entire book, and it's not written for the scholar like these books. Well, not all of these are, but these two are. Anyone can pick this book up, and, and, and it's a fascinating story about the evidence of this particular manuscript dating to pre-70 A.D. Now, the book of Matthew was probably written in the 60s. So if this is a document from the 60s, the case is made in this book. This could even be an original autograph or really, really close to it within the same decade of the writing of the book of Matthew. And it is a fascinating read. It's called Eyewitness to Jesus, Amazing New Evidence, Manuscript Evidence about the Origin of the Gospels, uh, of course, it, um, by everything in the book, but it is a fascinating read. And a lot of people are saying the jury's still out now because of this very interesting work about maybe P64 being the oldest papyrus manuscript. By the way, in this book, too, talk about Qumran. A lot of people talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. In Cave 7, everybody asks, is there any New Testament manuscripts in Qumran? Now, remember, this is a Jewish sect, probably uh, what we call the Essenes, and they were about to march up to, to Masada. Uh, they weren't Christians, they were Jews, right? And it was in the middle of the first century when they hit all this stuff, and most of the stuff in their library, unlike our libraries where they're pumping out new books all the time, these were all old books. When they were stored, they were either, you know, 50, 100, 200, or 300 years old when they stuffed them in the caves and ran up the hill. The Dead Sea Scrolls, there's one fragment that he argues in this book that he thinks is Mark 6, verses 52 and 53, and it's a very small fragment, and a lot of the things in the Dead Sea Scrolls were just terribly small fragments, uh, and he argues in this particular book for that one uh, manuscript 
from cave seven, document number five being Mark, which would be fascinating if the gospel of Mark showed up again, we're talking now pre-70 AD in the Qumran caves. And people are still debating that and there's still uh, information on it. Oh, and you say, well, I don't wanna buy another book. You're always telling me to buy books. I looked this up, this entire manuscript of that book, Eyewitness to Jesus, is available online for free. You can read it online until your eyeballs turn blue. The whole book is online. Hard to read an entire book online. Um, I don't prefer to do it, but it's there for you if you're really cheap. <laughs> right? Sorry. The other book I want you to uh, know is out there, which is also somewhat fascinating, if nothing else, to learn about the 126 uh, papyri that exist in the oldest category of manuscripts uh, is this book that I'm showing you here, the text of the earliest New Testament Greek manuscripts. Now, a lot of it is the Greek of those manuscripts, but they also have a lot of pictures which are fascinating, and a one-page summary of the particular manuscript, where they found it, what it's about, where it's housed, and it's not in technical language, so it's, 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 it's interesting to have on hand. Especially for those, by the way, that are always saying, well, the Bible's been rewritten a million times, and you know, it's been changed so much. Well, you can take these, you can look at not only the picture, but you can look at the, the typeset text from each of those manuscripts dating back to the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th century, and you could take a Greek New Testament and lay it side by side, and you can see, hey, it really hasn't changed. It's the same stuff. That alone is worth throwing out. Because, you know, when, they come, when the cults come knocking on your door, the way they're pushing their stuff, whether it's the Watchtower Tract Society, right, or whether it's the Book of Mormon, the one thing they have to do, or the Muslim that lives next door, what they have to do is they have to undercut this, see, to sell you their deal. And to have this on hand isn't a bad thing to say, hey, these, th this goes back to the second, if not the first century, uh, and it, it all, it all is the same. So I don't know what you're talking about in terms of a developing, evolving, translated a million different times Bible. Is that helpful? And by the way, the websites that are popping up today with a lot of this stuff on it, fascinating. Not too many do what Philip's uh, Comforts book does here, uh, but there are a lot of great things out there now that you can get online. Even the links from the Wikipedia uh, articles are uh, fascinating. A lot of great pictures. Let's keep talking about these. What's the importance of these? Well, of course, they're the oldest. The oldest manuscripts, that, that's, that's helpful. Why is that helpful? Because they're the least copied manuscripts, right? If we have manuscripts to the second century, then I know that whatever they were copied from can't be far from the original. And a lot of these, the cases made, were translated, or I should say copied from original or second generation at, very, at the very least second generation copies. Because as these copies were made, the closer you can get to the original, the better, right? We don't want there to be opportunities for mistakes to creep in in the copyists as we move away. So the papyrus manuscripts become the most important because these are the least copied manuscripts. These are the manuscripts that have been copied the least and they are the oldest and we have them in our possession today. Where? Here, look down that list. And, and, and they're, they're, they're everywhere around the world. Most of these, you should know, were discovered since 1900. God is like this, is he not? He loves to bring stuff out of his back pocket just about the time we're too smart for our own britches and we say, well, this just can't be. And in our day, 
The last hundred years, when people have doubted everything about the Bible, it is fantastic that we've uncovered most of the oldest manuscripts of the Bible, the New Testament, the Bible included, because the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947. We found those in the last hundred years, when everyone is a skeptic and everyone's smarter than Abraham, right? Everybody's a smarty pants. And so God says, great, we'll uncover thousands of manuscripts for you, uh, hundreds of papyrus manuscripts so that you can know that this stuff hasn't changed. Helpful. All right. And by the way, the, the chart doesn't tell you when they were found, but books like this will tell you when they were found. You know, when exactly did that manuscript get uncovered? Let's talk about some of the important manuscripts that you should know about. And what I'm going to do now, I've already said each papyrus is a group of manuscripts. Some, I guess, are singular leaves or pages. But now I'm going to try to group together groups of papyrus groups into categories. One you should know about is the Chester Beatty papyri. It's a group of papyri that were discovered in 1931 in Egypt by Chester Beatty. He uh, was born in 1875, New York City, Columbia University grad. This was a great story. He went to school and studied mining at Columbia and then went out to Colorado and set up a copper mine or ran a copper mine and ended up making a fortune. And then like a lot of guys who make a fortune young in their life, they say, what do I really want to do? And what he really wanted to do was collect ancient manuscripts. And he was into all kinds of manuscripts. And so Chester Beatty went out all over the Middle East because he was into Oriental manuscripts, uh, Near Eastern manuscripts. And he went out looking for them and trying to buy them. And it's kind of the Indiana Jones who goes to these old cafes and all these places and tries to get his hands on manuscripts. Well, he was amazingly uh, uh, successful in this. And his set of papyri that he uncovered uh, were some of the most important ones. His collection uh, went to the British Museum. And then, uh, because he ended up living his last years of life in Ireland, he moved his entire collection, which included biblical manuscripts and other things. He was into, you know, ancient medical uh, papyri and what were they doing in medicine back then. And all of that got moved to Dublin, uh, Ireland. So they're there at the university. Uh, and some even ended up in Ann Arbor. The Ann Arbor uh, papyrus are from the Chester Beatty papyri group. And some are in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the University of Michigan. He died in 1954. Some of the papyri in his group were, for instance, the oldest one, if you don't count, the uh, Magdalene College papyri would be this one, uh, the screensaver on my iPhone, P52. It is the most, uh, it is the most um, authenticated, oldest papyri um, of the set. And I don't know, what does, uh, what does Wikipedia put the date at? I've got mine all mixed up now. P52, which is more than a plane. 150, okay? That's the most liberal date, right? Unless you're a complete, you know, irrational skeptic. Uh, conservative dates date this at 117. Moderate dates date that it is at 120 or 125. Liberal dates are 150. But it's all this early second century and this has uh, recto and verso. There's verses from John on both the front side, uh, recto and the back side, verso on the back side. And it is actually my screensaver on my phone. There's a whole, if you just put in P52, you'll get a lot of hits on, on uh, you know, the Mustang, the flying plane. 
And um, if you just put in the word Chester Beatty in P52, you'll get a great site. There's a couple of great sites that have some very high-res pictures of this and a lot of great, um, lot of great things there. Now remember, if the Magdalen papyrus predates this, then this wouldn't be the oldest one. But this is the one that most people are comfortable saying, probably the oldest record of the book, uh, of a New Testament book that we have. P45 is in this, P46, P47. All of these are from either the second or third century. And I'm not sure, I didn't double check the Wikipedia thing. I kind of did that last minute this morning. But these are all in the uh, Dublin Chester Beatty Museum, and it's a fascinating set. So next time you're in Dublin, stop in and get a peek. Bodmer, let's talk about him real quick. Martin Bodner, Bodmer. He was a um, Swiss collector of manuscripts, and he got 22 papyri in Egypt in 1952. He was a little bit like uh, Chester Beatty in that he was one of these guys who went out to try to collect ancient manuscripts from various fields of study. And he collected some of the early 2nd century, or uh, I should say 3rd century manuscripts, like P66, which was an amazing manuscript. That's this one. We've put this on various things. Uh, If you look closely at the corner there, it looks like it's a piece of wood. Do you see that? It's not wood. That's 124, I'm sorry, 104 pages of papyrus. He bought this in Egypt in 1952, and, and all scholars agree this is, you know, back to uh, probably the early 200s. Let's see what Wikipedia had to say about this. 200s, right? Somewhere in the 200s. There you go, that agrees. This is a great find. 100 pages of papyrus, uh, which is now, by the way, housed in Geneva, if you're, next time you're in Geneva. P72, Jude and First Peter, Second Peter. P74, that was a later manuscript. Really, all of the Bodmer papyrus are, are amazing, but... Um, that particular one that, that I've, you probably have seen that picture around. Um, maybe you haven't. What am I thinking? Yeah, right next to uh, Regis and whatever. And the World Series pictures today. No, probably haven't seen. All right. Great. One more I want to tell you about because these I've held in my hand. I call them the Yale papyri, which I think some people actually do call them that. Uh, P49 and P50. I think this will take us back to when we talked about... Uh, Constantine, that scoundrel that created the Bible. (laughs) Oh, that's right. We put that myth to rest, I hope. When I was in um, New Haven, Connecticut, I was in the middle of doing master's uh, research and study and work. I stopped in at Yale and got to their antiquities department and held in my hand uh, P49 and P50. Those are the two manuscripts. If you look those up on your chart, those should say they're in New Haven. Uh, They're in the basement, by the way of the Antiquities Library. And what's great about this is the first one, P49, that I held and examined was, uh, it's a 200s document, is that what it says? They, they dated it 250, sometime in the, in the third century. And um, it contains Ephesians chapter four, which is a great passage, to Ephesians five. And P50 is a late 300s or early 400s, what are they dated at, 400s, uh, of Acts eight uh, and Acts 10. What's interesting about those two documents, and it just so happens I did this, and this was great preparation for the whole Da Vinci Code debate, 
is that here is a manuscript I held in my hand in comparison with my Greek New Testament and saw, which again, you could look up in a book like this, but I did it firsthand. I didn't have to trust Philip Comfort to do it. I saw the manuscript. I had the manuscript. I had a Greek New Testament. I could compare those documents. One was pre-Council of Nicaea and one was post-Council of Nicaea, right? Council of Nicaea, 325, when Constantine apparently wrote the Bible (laughs) or had his guys do it. And we created the whole divinity thing. That was a great thing for me. And it's great that Yale has one pre-Nicaea and post-Nicaea because the anti-Nicaea or pre-Nicaea document obviously matches the New Testament we have that we study in school and the post-Nicaean one exactly the same. I think that's fascinating. Unshiels. I don't know why we stick with that name. Just another word to torture us in school. Unshield manuscripts. This is a whole other category. Page 32. Description. Majuscule. There's another bad word uh, I don't care for. Uh, all it means is all caps. That's on my keyboard. I can say that one. Uncioles or majuscules are simply manuscripts that are written in all caps because that was the standard script of the time. It was the way they preferred to, um, to write. It's how they did it. It's what they taught. And so as the early papyrus, now don't be confused because some of the, manu- the, the uh, uncial manuscripts are on papyrus, but that doesn't matter. What changed between the papyrus category and the uncial category was the way they were written. Now we have this different kind of cap script, and it looks like this. And you can see it's neater than the other script. It's more blocked. That blocked form is this whole new category of manuscripts that we need to get the date for here. Fourth to ninth century. So you can see the papyrus overlap with the uncial manuscripts, but the uncial manuscripts, or the uncial manuscripts, depending on how you say it, um, they are a different kind of script. And they, as we date those, fall into the fourth to ninth century category. Now, what's important here is we move from a guy who seems less like a scribe, more on this when we talk about the Old Testament, and more like a Christian trying to write a text so he can give it to someone or provide it for a church. And now we get this uncial or uncial manuscripts that are more professionally done. As you could see in that last slide I gave you, it was more neatly done. It was more, more professionally done. It looked more like, like printing than handwritten script. Because Christianity in the Roman Empire, in the West at least, was legalized in 313 AD. We see this to be more of a golden era of manuscript production. Because the manuscripts began to be done with the blessing of the society and freedom to do so. There was more freedom to produce manuscripts and to preserve quality manuscripts. Which also is the reason we moved from papyrus as the primary paper to vellum and vellum becomes the primary paper, if you will, the, the, the medium on which these documents were written. So what are the differences? Well, the manuscript form changed to block letters, all caps, and the material on which it was written changed to vellum. And usually fine vellum, and fine vellum was um, younger animals. <laughs> Sorry, but, you know, eat veal and have nicer paper. That's what they did. They, they, I know, so Sorry. Uh, and it created bet for better and longer-lasting manuscripts. And it's why we have more uncial manuscripts 
uh, from this period. Not only is it not as old, but they're better materials, and we have them in much better form than we did the earliest manuscripts. Importance, well, they're the earliest, most complete New Testaments that we have. I mean, you look through some of the pyrus. Well, there, I just happened to open to Yale's P50 right here. And you see just a small section. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven paragraphs. That's it. Then the rest of it, who knows where it is? That's the problem with the papyrus manuscripts. Now we go to the uncial manuscripts and we have books. And they're usually codices. They're in they're, they're codex this and codex that. They're books and they're complete. Some of them are totally complete. Let's talk about so quality materials. I already talked about that. And they're well-preserved and they're abundant. We have more of them. They're better preserved. They're, more, they're done more meticulously. They're done, obviously, by people that had more time or put in more time to do it. Let's talk about major manuscripts. Vaticanus, the dreaded Vaticanus. Vaticanus is one of the most fascinating and amazing manuscripts that exist. It's got almost the entire New Testament. It's got the, almost the entire Bible The mystery about this is we don't know where it came from. We know it dates, and everyone agrees, between 325 and 350. Matter of fact, that was the rest of what I gave you. I started to give you some of the uncial manuscripts here, did I not? Did you see all the Gothic P's went away and we started having numbers here? Well, those numbers, look at number three, Vaticanus, 350. Of course, Wikipedia wouldn't say 325. They're going to say 350, okay? It's in the Vatican Library. Where is that? In Rome and Vatican City. By the way, this is a small sampling because this would go on and on and on and on because there's a lot of them. Vatican Library was put together by the Pope, one of the popes in the 11th century, I believe, when they built the Vatican Library. It's been in the Vatican Library since the Vatican Library was made. Where did it come from? Nobody. Nobody knows. Theories are it was written in Rome. That was one theory. I think Kenyon said that. Uh, Some say it was written in Alexandria, Egypt, because we have a lot of manuscripts from Alexandria, Egypt. Some say it was written in Caesarea, in Israel, where Paul was in prison. Those are the three primary theories about it. We don't know. All we know is it's been in the Vatican Library since the Vatican Library has been there. And when manuscript discovery began to be uh, something of an interest to the church scholars, uh, about, I don't know, 400 years after the Vatican Library, someone said, oh, we have this old manuscript here in our library. <laughs> Everybody said, really? They said, yeah, but you know, the Catholic Church, the, we're not sure we want to show it to anybody. So they released a few pictures of it. And we didn't have a complete picture of Vaticanus of every page because, let's see, it's 350 pages from the fourth century, 359 pages of very fine vellum. Um, they didn't release it until 1890. And they finally put the whole thing out for people to see. So if you think of any translation before 1890, it didn't have the advantage of Vaticanus. Unfortunately, the very end of it's missing. After Hebrews 9, 14 is done. It's gone. The end of the book is gone. It's very straightforward. Oh, I got some pictures for you. You wanted pictures. Here's Vaticanus. It's a book. See it? Uh, It's in the Vatican Library. Here's the Vatican Library. If you've seen the Vatican Library, I've been to the Vatican before and the Vatican Library and all that, you get to go in this very... I I was so disappointed with the Vatican Library because there's no books, right? (laughs) Because in the back is where all the books are, and it looks like this. And this is where they store in the Vatican Library. If you look up Vatican Library, you'll see all these... 
fancy pictures, and it's really disappointing if you're a book lover because there's no books. It's pillars and posts and beautiful paintings and all that, but if you were to get back in here where they won't let you, matter of fact, they didn't let anybody look at Vaticanus for 400 years, uh, it's stored back in here in the Vatican Library, and it's still there to this day. Fascinating find. One of the most complete and earliest manuscripts of the entire Bible, although there are some sections missing. Obviously, it's an ancient manuscript. What does it contain? Well, when I say the whole Bible, I'm not talking about it in Hebrew. The whole entire Vaticanus is in Greek. And, of course, the Greek version of the Old Testament is the Septuagint. We tr- we, did we talk about the Septuagint much yet? It's abbreviated with LXX, which is the Roman numeral 70, because the story was that Alexander the Great building this library in Alexandria. He had 70 scholars work on this and translate the Hebrew text into Greek. Well, that's what we have in Vaticanus, which is a step removed from Hebrew, but the Greek New Testament is not a step removed because that's what the New Testament was written in. So it's a fascinating New Testament find, although it does have implications for Old Testament textual criticism. Vaticanus. Wish we had more time to talk about some of these, but we got to talk about now Sinaiticus. They all got us in with cuss. <laughs> Sinaiticus. This dates back to 340. So it's right in that same time period as um, Vaticanus. Now, of course, Vaticanus was named after where it's housed because no one knows where it came from, which is fascinating. There's what you should make a movie about. Write your book about, Da Vinci Code Man. Sinaiticus is named after where it's found. Sinaiticus was found in the Sinai Peninsula. Sinai. Remember that from your Bible history? That's where Moses got the Ten Commandments from. Sinai. In the Sinai Peninsula, there is a, um, a monastery, St. Catherine's Monastery. Oh, by the way, let me give you a picture of it first. I have a picture of St. Catherine's. There, by the way, look how beautiful Sinaiticus is. That is a beautiful, t- that looks like it's off a printer, does it not? It is an absolutely beautiful text. And look at how, look at the quality of that. It's an amazing, and you know, this is a great section. Uh, this is actually from the Septuagint from Sinaiticus. This is the Song of Solomon. I just thought I'd throw up a racy passage. But it's done in two colors. It's indented. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a fantastic uh, find. Now, it was found by this guy, Tischendorf, in 1844. Had a lot of side, big sideburns, old Tischendorf. He was a German scholar living in Prussia at the time. Friedrich Constantin von Tischendorf was his name. And he, like the folks that would come later who were in search of manuscripts, he, that, was, that was his thing. He was going to go out and do studies in the history of the Bible. And it took him through various travels. And he found his way to St. Catherine's Monastery on his first visit in 1844. He ends up at the monastery. And as he's touring the monastery, and of course he shows up looking like that, or he probably had his cool you know, Indiana Jones hat on at the time. And they're, they're skeptical of him, but they let him in, and he's there to look for manuscripts. I want to see your old library, because all the monasteries had their little libraries with old manuscripts in it. Well, he gets there to St. Catherine's, and he finds a monk with a basket. And he says, well, what's that basket for? And he says, well, that basket is for starting our fire every night. And in the basket was leaves of an old, ancient manuscript, right? So he gets a sampling of that, and he takes it back to Germany, and they find out, wow, that's a really old copy of the Septuagint. So he goes back again. Now, this is big. This is in the 1800s, middle of the 1800s. 
He travels back again from Prussia to, uh, the, you know, to, to the Sinai Peninsula, in, 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 in uh, the Sinai in Arabia there, and he, they, they shut him down. No, you're, you're, you're looking for stuff. It's not yours. It's ours. They sent him away. He went back a third time, and he was about to get skunked and shut out on this trip, and he thought it was over. And as he's leaving, a steward of the monastery pulled him aside and said, you know, I got to tell you, we do have more of that manuscript that you talked about. As a matter of fact, we have a, just a giant stack of, of these things in a codex, in a book, and, uh, you know, I don't know how well he got along with the other monks, but he said, I'd like to gift it to you. Um, and, and, and he called it a conditional gift, which became a big brouhaha. We should show a movie on this one day because there have been some movies on this. And Constantine ends up leaving to Prussia with Codex Sinaiticus, which would later be called Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, it was the most complete text of the Bible that we have. It is 364 pages of beautifully well-written, you know, nicely scripted uh, in, in block form, uh, uncial letters of, of the entire Bible. He gave it to the Tsar of Prussia, who later ended up sending it away to someone else, and I think it's now in the British Museum. Oh, that's right, I wrote that down. The British government bought it, uh, for the, for, the, for the British Museum for, 500, for an equivalent of $500,000. So for half a million dollars, and that is where it is today. Is it not? Let's look at our list. Is it still housed there? Yes, the British Library in London. Which I think from time to time, and I w I've been to the British Library, and uh, of course I went in and say, hey, I want to thumb through, you know, uh, Sinaiticus. Uh, <laughs> I didn't say it that way, but that's kind of what I was hoping for. And uh, they, no, 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 we only bring Sinaiticus out for certain occasions. So if you're there, you do need to check the schedule of the British Museum. Occasionally they bring out and have presentations of Codex Sinaiticus. It is an amazing uh, manuscript, very important, complete, um, complete uh, manuscript of the Bible with very few exceptions. Some of the Old Testament's not there. This is St. Catherine's, by the way. Can you see that? It looks like Petra a little bit in Jordan of Eden, ancient Edom, but it's down there in the crags of the rocks, and that's where Friedrich Constantine von Tischendorf discovered a monk burning the Septuagint. Because, you know, we've got to start the fire somehow. Oh, what did I have there? Go back to that. CodexSynaticus.org. If you're on your computer, plug that in. CodexSynaticus.org. They put the entire thing, they just finished this project in high, and I mean high-res pictures of every page. And you can see it in kind of their x-ray light, and then you can see it with normal light, and it's all there for you to thumb through. Beautiful manuscript. Check it out. Go to the Song of Solomon, and you can find that page I just put up there. One more. Let's see. Do we have, we have time for this? Alexandrinus. Let's do that one. Alexandrinus. That's up near the top of my list there, is it not? Number two. Number two. Oh, and by the way, do you see that the Gothic letters are always representing papyrus, the earliest ones? The second ones, the uncial manuscripts, 
always start with a zero. It can be zero, one, zero, two, plus there's some letters that also correspond, but don't get confused, the letters and the numbers, they mean the same thing. Then the numbers run out, or the letters run out and the numbers continue. The numbers, even if it's into the thousands, it always starts with a zero. Zero, 22, zero, you know, 122. That's how you can tell. And why is that important? Because go back to page number seven. I just turned there. Go to page number seven. And again, I apologize for the poor copy. Here's the book of Romans in a Greek New Testament. Do you see it? Down at the bottom there, let's look at verse number 21. Hoti, that. That's the word that. And it's trying to tell you that, that the, the word hoti there um, is found in P46. And if you were to look at P46 on your chart, you'd find, oh yeah, book of Romans is in P46, the eighth chapter of Romans. And then it's got the letters A, B, C, and D. A, then, if you look at your chart, is Alexandrinus, B, Vaticanus, right? Right on down the list. Then the numbers come. If there are numbers that don't start with a zero, then we'll look at these. That's, then that's a minuscule manuscript. That's the next category we're going to look at. But all of that stuff that you have to figure out at the bottom of your Greek New Testament, all is code for which manuscripts have that reading. And when there's a variant reading, and whether you have Omicron... Uh, tau iota or it's delta iota omicron tau iota that little difference there right then they'll say well some manuscripts these manuscripts have that dehoti and these these manuscripts have that hoti and it'll list them all for you more on that later i don't want to know that pastor mike we won't get very deep into that <laughs> here's alexand alexandrinus it's a pretty manuscript it's not as pretty as Sinaiticus. Sinaiticus is off the charts but Alexandritis is a nice, clean, crisp, good lined up lines, all caps. That's what they were. Scribes, we assume, in Alexandrinus uh, were the ones who wrote this. These were professional guys that did it. That's the theory, at least. This dates to 450 AD. It was brought to England in 1624 after being in Alexandria for all those years from the 400s. So it spent a long time in Alexandrinus, I mean in Alexandria rather, it was actually presented to the church in Constantinople first, but then it was taken to England. By the way, I put the date 1624 because by the time it made it to England, it was, they were trying to bring uh, Alexandrinus, which was 773 pages of manuscripts in this big codex, they were trying to get it to King James before he died. Now what year was the King James Bible translated? 1611. They wanted to get it there, which of course wouldn't have made much difference because they weren't going to use it at that point. It was too late and all the translation work had been done. But by the time it got to England, uh, James had died and then who came next? Charles, right? The first came next and they ended up presenting it to him. But it missed all the insight from Alexandrinus, which was helpful. It was one of the oldest, almost complete New Testaments. Uh, it didn't make it into any of the scholarship for the King James Bible. It's now in the British Museum contains most of the Bible. Some parts of it are corrupted and fallen apart. And it was written on vellum. Now in the British Museum. I already said that. Visa. Let's take a quick moment and look at that. Forgot I put them here, but this guy's important. Theodore Beza. Does that sound familiar? You reformed guys out there? French Protestant reformer. He succeeded John Calvin in Geneva. As a leader, he was also a big-time New Testament scholar. 
he actually, Theodore Beza put out nine editions of the Greek New Testament. That's, phen that's phenomenal. Nine editions of the Greek New Testament in his day. Um, he found this manuscript in a uh, monastery in France, what would later be France. And the reason I wanted to give you this manuscript, it is the earliest diglot. You know what diglot means? Two languages. Di means two glot language, two tongues, two languages. It's the earliest diglot of Latin, which will become super important in our discussion, even as we talk about the English Bible and Greek. Okay? And I put a page here. Oh, Theodore Biza. Let's talk about him first. I already did. Here, here's a picture of him. Looks like a guy who knows a lot. Uh, and he was super smart, master of the Greek language, a phenomenal guy, put out all kinds of Greek New Testaments. Um, this manuscript that he found in France in this monastery has... Uh, Greek and Latin. Here's the Latin side of it. You've seen enough Greek New Testaments and, and manuscripts. That's eh, so small, and I'm sorry about that. But here's one of the earliest Greek Latin diglots. We still have those. And if you go to school, it's usually not required anymore, but I, I have one, and sometimes they're helpful. We, we sometimes study these Latin Greek diglot Bibles. I should have brought mine. The United Bible Society puts them out in green. But... Uh, that tradition started back here uh, in this manuscript that dates back, well, what does it date back to? Because I don't even think I wrote it down, to the uh, 5th century, the middle of the 5th century, 450. Mostly the Gospels. It ended up at Cambridge University. Is that what our chart says? Cambridge University, look at that. And uh, has Greek on the left, Latin on the right. And it is a great manuscript. Now at Cambridge, I said that. Well, if you feel buried in all this, I don't want you to feel buried, but I want, what I want you to do, though, because the skeptics, I just read a page, you know, of knuckleheads on the internet talking about the Bible. Even just sit, even if you didn't catch all of what we talked about tonight, if you can soak in some of it, Next time you read one of those guys that's taking the Bible, throwing it under the bus, like it was just a big evolving, you know, story, uh, you know, game of telephone that turned, you know, it started with Jesus was a cool married guy and had a kid named Tom and, and he really was neat and he gave a lot at church, at synagogue, and now he's the resurrected Messiah, you know, 2,000 years later. It just all evolved. You, you can know, right, that that is not the case. We have so much manuscript evidence that is 99% exactly the same as what we have in our Greek New Testaments today from which all of our modern Bibles are translated. So all of that to say that, but here's some of the supporting material and we're out of time, so let's pray. There's a good, there's a good way to wrap it up. Just say we're done. God... We are grateful for the history of your word, and it is a bit frustrating because um, few of us here have studied the languages. We put these pictures up. For most people, it's just a lot of squiggly lines on paper, but God, I just pray that there would be some enthusiasm and appetite for the wonderful preservation of your word from the very beginning. What amazing stories of us, even in the last 100 years, uncovering 
manuscripts that date back perhaps to the first century and at least the second century. And these amazing finds in monasteries of guys that were willing to give up comfortable lives and convenience of modern life in the 1800s in nice cities and in the aristocracy of their, their homeland to go to places and to be thirsty and hot and tired and travel and look for manuscript support for the New Testament. What a great heritage we have. Thank you, God, that when we read the Bible, whether it's John 3.16 or Romans 8.1, we can know that those are the words that have been inscribed in the pages of the Bible from the beginning. That Christians for centuries have heard the voice of God through those words from, from day one. And that we can be sure that the Bible that we carry around, though everyone wants to take you know, their pseudo-intellectual pot shot at it, is really a text that has come down to us with, uh, with an amazing accuracy and a, and a precision that comes not only from a very technical language, the, the language of the New Testament, at least the language of Greek, but God has been, uh, has been re- remarkably checked and double-checked and cross-checked so that what we have in our lap is something we can hold on to with confidence, a book that is, uh, is preserved. So help, God, thanks for letting us get a little insight again into some of these great manuscripts. And I pray that some would go further, go on the internet to reputable sites, I hope, and look at some of these great manuscripts, the pictures and the stories behind them, that we might again get excited tomorrow morning about opening up our Bibles or tonight before we go to bed, opening up our Bibles and reading the words of life. Thanks for taking care of them through the ages in Jesus' name.